0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pittsburgh with Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson. And with me today on this day, which is re- re- replete with technical difficulties, is Mr. Anthony B. Mario. I hope I'm not butchering that. He has recently written two very interesting articles in both the Orange County Register and the American Conservative. And he has also been a contributor to the program before, well, not contributor. he appeared on the program before, talking about individuality and uh, I forgot exactly what the details of that essay were, but it was a brilliant discussion. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Anthony, how are you doing, my friend?
1: Hi, good. Thanks for having me on, Christian. appreciate it. Awesome. Love to be
0: back. So, you know, in my opinion, the height of humility is to admit when you are incorrect. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think it is. That's the height of humility. That is yeah. what I think human survival has been predicated upon. If we had a static mindset going through the world, going through... Uh, the the process of uh, building civilizations and the process of forming connections and the process of trying to encapsulate and compartmentalize what those things are, calling it love, calling it bonding, calling it all these sort of, these sort of things that we can use to prod and we can use to understand certain things. If we'd had a static a mindset in that period of time, then I don't think that we would have made it. So I think that to continue that process of humility, To continue that process is is to continue the process of growth. And so, but beyond my philosophical musings, I want to genuinely know, and you're, because, you know, I could go on for hours about that. I want to genuinely know, Anthony, what was the tipping point? Well, first of all, explain what you were wrong about, explain why you were wrong, and explain the tipping point that brought you to that
1: epiphany. Sure. Well, first, let me just, I'll say one word about your philosophical musings things because I think you're exactly right. There's something to be said about being able to and you know, you're wrong. I mean, um, I think the liberal mindset in the liberal society uh, is the one that can self-correct. Um, pointing out criticism and pointing out things that can be fixed is is how um, you function and uh, evolve something truly progressive. So I agree and I, I, I was wrong, uh, at least I think I was regarding um, coronavirus. So I wrote this article in the American Conservative, uh, <laughs> aptly titled, I Warned About Coronavirus, uh, Now I Feel Like a Fool. Um, it might be a little misleading to the extent that I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of the virus, because uh, 100,000 people have died. Um, but what I feel like I was wrong about was living my daily life um, based on the advice of these government institutions. Uh, for which are, are fairly compromised to a certain extent. I really do believe that. Um, so back in January when we first heard about this, I had no reason to doubt the World Health Organization. Um, you know, I had a little bit of a concern when they were touting uh, Chinese transparency from the Chinese government, that is, um, and saying that it, you know, it was not something to be worried about, but 14 days later, uh, it was a global pandemic. But again, I... Although I might not expect the same country like China to, who, who has a concentration camp of over a million Uyghur Muslims in that country, to be very honest with the world. The world, yeah, the World Health Organization was supposed to be different, especially to the extent that we, uh, the United States, funded, used to, uh, 22% of their um, total revenue. So again, I had no reason to mistrust them, but what was the tipping point you asked? It was the discussion uh, around the protests um, amongst health experts. Um, And it felt like gaslighting. Because to hear health experts and journalists um, at very prominent magazines and institutions, um, in the same breath, tell me Georgia is experimenting in human sacrifice, but protesters shouldn't even consider the risks of coronavirus into consideration um, before joining millions in the crowd, that is, if we went from shaming people who were out in the streets to shaming people who wouldn't join um to echo a recent guardian article i have to completely that's something i really uh had trouble grappling with and so i said this is nonsense a uh, ep- epidemiological risk does not disappear in the face of potential political um gains of any kind so um that for me was the typical point. what i was wrong about specifically was listening to the advice in practicing my daily health habits based on these government institutions which are clearly compromised um mm-hmm. compromised that's by. that's really where i take a stand
0: on by uh arrogance I, compromise by whether abortion. it's ideological
1: yeah whether it's ideological um agendas whether it's uh foreign governments um Really transposing what they want to be uh, publicized onto this organiz- onto these organizations, things like that. But also just just strange and bizarre uh, happenings, like the CDC and Fauci in I think mean, like in February tweeting, "You shouldn't have to worry about wearing a mask. You don't need to worry about wearing masks. They won't help." Um, come to find out, it's like 80% reduction rate for if everybody were to wear masks.
0: Precisely, so, and so. And as we know, initially they banned respirators, and now we understand that respirators actually do help when they say they didn't help. So, you know, it is my honest – it is my earnest opinion that everyone in a governmental position of power, everyone who has their hands on lever of power or who are close to it are possessed by the expediency of the moment or the expediency that will further their grip or their closeness towards that power. It's a sort of, sort of uh, corruption almost – of the self within a certain temporal moment, which guides your actions and corrupts your will to doing things that may not be ethically or morally, cosmically correct, but instead temporally and situationally correct. And of course, as we understand, there is not really a connection between what is temporally or situationally correct and what is a cosmic truth. And so this is precisely why I said about Fauci when he was suggesting that we keep America um, continually shut down and everything, that you you are a doctor, you're an epidemiologist, and I trust you in that sense. But if you're going to postulate public policy, you must have a grasp of the framework in which we conduct public policy. And if you do not, you have absolutely no business postulating crap, jack shit. Sorry to be vulgar, but it's the truth. And so Fauci clearly didn't take time to read the Constitution. He clearly didn't take time to understand the underlying tenets of America's existence. He clearly didn't take time to embrace the fullness of the American experiment. He decided to hijack the experiment, jump on the train, and try to steer it off into a railroad that would have sent us straight to oblivion. So I think that you are absolutely correct. When you when you have political expediency there, when you have a prize there, a trophy, folks will oftentimes be more focused on the trophy than what is actually ethically correct.
1: And a sad, you know, and that's a really good point, but a sad um, uh, effect of all this is is that, you know, there has been a war on so-called experts for a while, and there's been a prevalence of anti-intellectualism um, on the right, uh, amongst conservatives, even just right-leaning libertarians to a certain extent, and I have been really fighting against that notion that 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 we should respect educational institutions and expertise. For what is the point of having them, but to allow them to 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 uh, guide public discourse or at least present informational, informed informational knowledge that is based on things that they've been studying for years and years and years. And now this is just a perfect example for everybody who wants expert credibility to be lost because in, in some way it should be lost in this. I mean, it's their own doing. And, mm, you know, you course. see new and you see the news cycle when Trump had restarted his so-called MAGA rallies. Um, you know, everybody was <laughs> right back to, you know, the headlines we're reading despite coronavirus comma. And of course, uh, how can you blame, whether your political expediency aside, how can you blame people for 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 supporting and, tell, and going to those rallies when just weeks before it wasn't even worth considering coronaviruses as, as danger uh, when protesting for other political causes? Of course, of course. Uh, again, and this has nothing to do with the political content. This is just. As you said, health advice, policy advice, or not. It's either the virus is dangerous and deadly, or it's not. It can't shift yes. with the tides of ideological fervor.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. And when you mentioned fervor, fervor is fickle. Fervor is fickle because it, it is a, a certain circumstance is what produces fervor. A, a a enhanced, heightened circumstance. And as we understand, all circumstances are fleeting. I think Sartre was actually correct here in a sense. He wasn't correct on the sort of... Epistemological root of those, because when he said in 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 the nausea that the past is non-existent, it's an illusion. I don't think he's correct on that, but he is correct in that this moment that we exist in is fleeting. And when you predicate, when you predicate notions that will be less fleeting, that will exist for a little bit longer than the regular moment in the Sartrean Sartrean lexicon, what you do is you sort of set yourself up for a calamity and so i think that yeah i think that's that's absolutely correct and the political thing aside you're, you're right it's about philosophical consistency if there is truly a public health threat to the american experiment if there is truly a threat to the american mind if there is truly a threat to individual health then if you really care about that threat as the media so proclaimed they did, as CNN, I remember watching it before I was kicked out of my dorms. Well, not kicked out, before I left my dorm because of the uh, – the, well, I wasn't kicked out. My university was actually pretty yeah. good on that. It was actually pretty good on that. The president fought tooth and now to keep us there. I love him for that. When I decided to leave the dorm because I figured it was not expeditious to my health or to my growth as a human being to stay there, I remember watching every night. Don Lemon was on the TV with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and they were just talking, uh, you know, the coronavirus, coronavirus. It was, it was coronavirus 24-7. But when these protests happened, number one, the rate of coverage for coronavirus actually declined. Number two, the rate of coverage for these protests favorably, overwhelmingly favorably, actually increased. And even on the right, even on Fox News, even on a lot of these places, the coronavirus was not really mentioned as a critique of these protests. So both sides literally put down the reality of what was happening. And they embraced a relative space in which they ensconced themselves in and used the energy of that relative space to drive forth narratives that had absolutely nothing to do with this pandemic until it was convenient for them, or at least I will say until it was convenient for the left particularly. But the right has a little bit of, of shame in this as well. So my question for you is, what is going on? Why do you think folks are so easily able to weave between reality and narratives or reality and fantasy within political context and sort of use That magic of relativism, because it is a magic, really. I think people might think my terms are odd or weird. I don't. Don't don't think I'm crazy, but it is a certain kind of magic. Because magic in the traditional sense, if you were to understand the ancient text of Wicca, if you were to understand all that stuff, is simply imprinting your will upon reality and shifting it, shifting the ties of the universe. So, in a sense. These people are engaging in a form of magic when they shift the tides of the political universe. Why do you think that is so easily and so little, and, and so little absconded and you know admonished by people in our current political context?
1: Well, I mean I, that's honestly a loaded question, but I think yes, that it is. We're talking. We're is. talking yes. about – I mean, yes. you could probably write write a fairly long essay, if not a oh, yes. chapter in a book, on this. Um, but my my quick uh, bite answer would be something along the lines of um, considering what politics is um, in its current situation. Um, so, of course, politics uh, kept completely neutral and kept um, and conflated with with ethical judgments. That is, if you believe in X policy, you're also proclaiming. Um, a, a moral uh, instantiation. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, you hear Bernie Sanders talk. I think this really has to do with this conflation between politics and morality. You hear Bernie Sanders talk about, um, you know, it's immoral to not have universal health care. Right. And anyone who opposes this universal health care policy is immoral. And I think that that's just um, a category mistake because when you hear, for example, let's just take an example of climate change, that's another moralized topic. If you, you could, let's suppose person A wants to ban all fossil fuels um, to uh, and impose, you know, something like the Green New Deal, but they want the government to do it and they want it to be a top-down implementation. And then someone, person B says, yes, there is a climate issue, um, but I want some sort of market oriented solution to this. It's not that the person who disagrees with the Green New Deal proponent is immoral. They both actually value the same thing that is, the health right. of the environment. And the value statement
0: is the same. The value statement <laughs> yes, is the same. Yeah, yes. yeah
1: exactly. And, and it's just different ways of approaching that. So, again, to say that your political enemy is your moral enemy is a complete, complete category mistake. And again, when you make that conflation, though, however, it It's all about moral superiority and moral power. So what does that mean? That means narratives, especially political ones, are about dominance and power. So of course, if um, these health experts are viewing what is a protest and and focusing solely on the political contents of that protest and happen to find that protest righteous, like many, many people do, including myself, to say that they shouldn't do that for even health risks, in fact, the risks that they as experts are supposed to observe, would be to would be to cede ideological and political power because to oppose it would be ethically compromisable. So um, again, I think that that is my shorthand answer as to how these ideological narratives can infiltrate um, Epistemological ones, or you know, just 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 truth, value, policy. Um, so I think that's 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 my answer. The the conflation between politics and morals. Um, there's something deeply connected between the two, no doubt. Uh, but to say they are the same again, I think, is a category mistake.
0: Well, absolutely. It's uh, I mean, because essentially, I would I would say that the undergirding, the the principle that undergirds most political discussions, especially most political ideologies, are value statements. Right. So the idea of positive rights, which the Democrat Party postulates a lot, and sometimes even sometimes Republicans postulate a lot, um, that undergirds a sort of society, a, a sort of uh, allegiance to society, sort of allegiance to utility, almost. If you want to talk about pure ethical values, because uh, these things, these sort of voting, women's rights, all these the positive rights, have a certain utility towards, and that supposedly improves the greater good. Um. So in the, at the very bedrock, the nadir of political formation, I do think that there are certain constants. There are certain ideas. But, of course, on the surface, when we're talking very surface level, because Bernie Sanders saying that you're immoral if you don't support universal health care is an incredibly shallow statement. I should, I should uh, actually yeah.
1: qualify. I mean, single-payer health care, because I think everybody wants universal health care. Well, single-payer. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, well yeah, Everybody wants. Well. Everybody wants people to be covered if I, possible. I that I, is, I, I, certainly that, do. I don't think there are many – I would say the vast majority of people wants to see people, wants to see a society in which individuals who need medical care in a position able to achieve yes. to get that medical care. I, I However, sure, Bernie Bernie Sanders holds single payer as that solution, uh, you know, and let's say someone on the right probably holds a market oriented solution. Again, different solutions, but they both value the same. The thing. same these value statement, correct? These are political enemies, but not moral enemies. For so the and, shallow and
0: waters. Are, kind of obscure the true intents of these people. You think the shallow waters of politics kind of obscure the yes. true intentions, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's, it's in part probably deliberative. I mean, if you can make your political enemy a moral enemy, is, there's great power in that, again. Um, so to a certain extent, it's...
0: you said something that caught my ear, and I'm not sure most folks would have picked up on it because most folks, of course, a lot of folks that listen to P- 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 politics even are very, are not really philosophy students or... Philosophers—they are people who are simply trying to get a different take on the news, different take on what's going on. And I certainly hope I could—I do my—I do my best in giving them that. So you mentioned power. You said you basically said political narratives are all about power. That sounds very Foucaultian to me. So <laughs> why don't you <laughs> well, why don't you explain that? I'm curious about that one because I, I made my ears jump a little bit.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. I, and I—I I, what I was trying to say was political narratives uh, are only about power once they are uh, conflated with with you know ethics because ah, I think again that you got that go. there you go. th- that's that's where they are so there you go. that's why and I think that that's a common theme today at this conflation between politics and ethics and that's why we see these power politics right now oh, okay so so I, yeah the claim wasn't that politics period is is so, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, call it Foucaultian. Uh, <laughs> he would certainly say that there, there's power involved in, in every form of political enterprise. But but I'm, I'm making a qualified statement right now that, that just when you conflate it with, with ethical claims, that, that's where the power, power plays really no, come out.
0: Yeah, precisely. Now, I have a question for you, though, about the ethical claims. Do you think that – so the statement of we hold these truths to be self-evident – is an ethical, that's actually a, quali- as a qualifier for an ethical statement to be made. It's a sort of precursor for an ethical statement to be made that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The pre- entire preamble is an ethical statement. But it, it appears to me that statement is a negation of potential power that would seek to encroach upon the foundation. Of what that statement affirms. That statement affirms the natural foundation of human liberty. That statement affirms the natural foundation of the rights composition, which allows our flesh and animates our bodies to exist in this world. According to that, according to that doctrine, I I believe that doctrine. And so, that statement is a negative statement. And you know, and I don't for everyone who doesn't know that that means he, Anthony. I'm sure he po- he positively sure he does. A negative statement is simply a statement that, that that restricts someone. It's a negation. It's a lack of action, so to speak. That's a negative statement. And so are you to say that all ethical, political statements are positive statements? Because if you were to say that when ethics is paired with politics, you would be insinuating that it is a positive statement, that it is is an an interventionist and an involved statement. But I find that, and oftentimes, that's not the case all the time, especially when it comes to fundamental principles.
1: Sorry, you cut out a little bit there, but I just want to make sure I I got the question right. Are you asking if I think that Uh, ethics in relation to politics is all about negative versus positive statements? No, no.
0: I'm asking if you think that ethics paired with politics is almost always a positive, i.e. an involved interventionist sort of uh, postulation, as opposed to a negative one, which negates power, which negates involvement. Because when you say that when ethics is paired with politics, it's primarily about power that suggests some sort of involvement. That suggests a sort of positive value. Uh, and I'm just very curious about that because I – yeah. Yeah, go
1: We're super, super complicated. So yes. I don't know if I'm truly going to answer your question, but I think there's – in this, again, um, an interesting analysis of this actually comes from Max Weber. He mm-hmm, – um, mm-hmm. He viewed, he had a pretty unique view of um, ethics and politics. He thought that there was a complete conflict between certain value spheres. He rejected the idea that politics could build on ethical foundations. And I think that he had something right because he talked about um, politics as having two different types of ethics. There was a um, ethic of conviction and an ethic of responsibility. Now, whether you agree with his analysis of those two, even taking the terms on their face, I think there's something interesting to that because there are convictions that each of us hold, I'm sure, right? And then there are responsibilities by which we get uh, from living in a society. Most people would agree with those two very basic claims that even, even those who are only in favor of negative values would say, yeah, I have a responsibility to not harm my neighbor, okay? Um, but I also have more <laughs> <laughs> like I have moral convictions like beliefs in God or non-beliefs. Again, um those two things I think come into conflict a lot. I think Maxwell yes. was absolutely right. I think that you look at any type of I mean the the LGBT uh Q plus issue around uh bakers baking gay cakes. That's a perfect perfect example. Baking think, gay cakes.
0: This, uh,
1: yeah, baking <laughs> cakes for gay weddings.
0: My lord, i All never right. heard of it. No, I don't know, no. oh, no.
1: Freudian, that was some sort yeah. of a slip. But I will tell you, but what I mean is, as that being a good example, of yep. what I'm talking about is that there are, the baker clearly has convictions, right? Yep. And so does the couple who wants to buy a cake. Um, they both have their own personal convictions and then there's supposed to be this overarching <laughs> ethic of responsibility that's supposed to sort of mitigate conflicts between those convictions. But I don't think it does a very good job at doing that because we have a different, uh, I, I think that nobody, uh, you know, on the one hand, people would say that that's discriminatory and I have some sort of, res- and and he as a baker and a member of society has some sort of responsibility not to discriminate against me. And that baker has the ultimate, the other the other version of that is, um, no, I have my own personal convictions and you have a responsibility not to violate those convictions, just like I wouldn't violate yours. So again, I think that that's a pretty good way. And this is a super rough sketch. Again, this is, this is just podcast off the top of my head bites on what I'm thinking about this. But when I think through these issues, I think it's a good way to um, understand the way that ethics interacts with politics, that ethic of conviction, that ethic of responsibility.
0: Right. I do think that, and as you said, it's a very rough, rough sketch because, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of considerations about this, especially when you get into deeper political theory. There's all kind of the theorists and philosophers that postulate certain ethical systems that do so from a sort of deontological view, from a consequentialist view. It's, it's a lot of stuff. and I mean, we haven't even mentioned virtue ethics and the virtue ethicists that are currently in American politics and academia trying to push their idea. We haven't even mentioned that. So, yeah, so there's a very, 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 very deep sort of ocean of, of knowledge. but. Um, I think you have answered my question in part, at least for the purposes of this podcast. You have. You have said <laughs> yes. no. You, you have. We we can we
1: can forward this conversation. Uh, yeah. The cosmic so
0: question point. is obviously <laughs> still out there.
1: It's yes, probably not going to yes. be
0: solved by us. It's <laughs> <laughs> no. probably not going to be solved by us because it's certainly. I mean, it's something that I grapple with personally as well. I mean, uh, but the answer seems to be that yes, there is a mixture within ethical political thinking of positive and negative values coming into conflict and forming opinions and forming actions and motivating certain things to happen. And for, for now that's a fine, that's a fine answer because for now it is, it is for now it's a fine answer because it's, it's, I think it's number one, I think it's observable. And number two, it kind of gives people a dynamic sense in which sort of a dynamic incubator in which political action can be conceived. Which can make people feel, which can sort of break the more shallow surface of this dichotomy, which would be, which would manifest in the form of Republican and Democratic parties. The party system itself is a sort of shallow form of the conglomerate between ethics and politics, I think. Because what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to be avatars of certain opinions. But organizations are simply compositions of individuals, and individuals change their opinions all the time. And when you are in a political system, there are so many other motives that are motivating you other than conviction. So the lie of conviction is kind of what has, in my opinion, produced shallowness in politics. The lie of conviction, filtered through the parties, not filtered, exuded by the parties. Uh, What do you think about that postulation? I think a, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think you nailed it. I, I think you nailed it when you, when you discussed uh, political parties serving as avatars. You, got, you see this through debates um, about political histories. Oh, the Republican Party is responsible for this. No, the Democratic Party really was responsible for this. Um, none of it seems to add or map on correctly because, of course, like you said, political parties evolve over time. JFK certainly doesn't look like anything that a contemporary Democratic uh Canada he does not for office looks like today <laughs> you know and, right. I, and i'm certain abraham lincoln because uh, he seems to be just perpetually brought up by the president doesn't look like anything that we're seeing out of the gop of course it so doesn't. thankfully uh, <laughs> so again thankfully again we are getting, well that's that's an opinion i i i don't know if i'd share but still either <laughs> way Either way, you're absolutely right in the in the observation that, that these political parties serving as avatars is a bit misleading to the extent that they're always evolving.
0: Well, let me elaborate on that because I don't want people to think I'm some sort of pro-slavery neo-Confederate guy hiding beneath the veneer of a black student. No, 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 no. that's <laughs> not that, that's not what I am. Um, I think that yeah, Abraham yeah. Lincoln was a man who had higher order ideas and aspired to higher order values. I mean, you've listened to any of that guy? You know, listen, you read any of that guy's speeches any of his correspondences he's always talking about the founding he's always talking about something greater than himself so that's very virtuous um but uh, in, in my opinion when you go down and you seize newspapers and you destroy businesses and you just arrest people who have a different opinion about the war than you do in a land that is supposed to stand against the confederacy which is which was an avatar of destruction and dictatorial sort of nonsense and fetishism against black folks you you betray those higher order principles you were talking about. And so I don't see Lincoln as a saint. I see him as someone who is certainly better than the alternative. Uh, I don't see him as an evil, so to speak. I don't believe in that dichotomy, less to two evils. But I see him as someone who made incredibly bad and ethically questionable decisions amid a war effort to inspire public morale. Now, there can be an argument made that If public morale is not inspired, the war machine falls, and the higher-order ideals that Lincoln postulated through the machinery of the Union would have fell as well. I understand that argument. That's a very important point to bring up. But it does not justify, in my opinion, violating inviolable rights, which compose the essence of humanity. And so that's my issue with Lincoln. And I'm happy that – well, I can't say the Republican Party is not like that today. I can't say that, actually. I I actually – I prematurely spoke. I can't say that.
1: Civil asset civil forfeiture. That's a good segue. You know? I, 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 yeah. The seizure I, of property that you were- Yeah,
0: let's promote. talk about that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll wrap up in a few moments because I know you got to go. I got to go. But civil uh, so forfeiture is one of those issues that makes me wonder how have we fallen so far from – I'm not going to say what the meme says – I mean with the Kermit and how you've fallen so far from God. I'm not going to say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how,
0: how, how have we fallen just so far from the aspiration of property as an extension of our natural freedom in this country, which our country is predicated upon? I mean, literally, our Constitution says you cannot unlawfully quarter in my house without my It had to give you my permission. You cannot take my property. I have to give you my permission. You have to do it through a just means, so due process. And unfortunately, asset forfeiture, as many libertarians, as many astute observers of the American tradition will understand, is a dereliction of the inherent ideological presuppositions of the American experiment. So tell, tell us what you wrote about in this in the Orange County Register, which is a fair publication in my opinion. I think they do some great work over there. Tell us exactly. Just give me a synopsis of your of, sure, of, yeah. of your argument Yeah, for the viewers.
1: Yeah, so I... I just bemoaned the rot uh, on civil liberties that civil asset forfeiture really is. Um, first of all, it's worth noting that this isn't something that is um, just opposed by one side or the other. Recent right. poll, I think it was in a couple of years ago, eighty-four percent of people oppose this practice. It's my person, uh, So yeah. you would th- you would think in the conversation of police reform, this is one of the first things that should go. Um, if you want a quick, uh, History of Civil Asset Forfeiture, it, I, Heritage has a really good blog on this, surprisingly enough. They put up a, a piece and they explain it, how it actually has its roots in um, um, ad, uh, forfeiture law of, of uh, ships, seizure of products coming into the United States um, from years ago. Um, so this was mostly about cargo and vessel forfeiture, uh, and it obviously got bloviated in the 1970s with the uh, comprehensive drug abuse prevention and control act and only continued to broaden itself through the 80s and of course the 90s with the war on drugs. Um, today it's there are two types of asset forfeiture. There's the criminal asset forfeiture which is usually you know very straightforward that once you're convicted of a crime any contraband connected or instrumentalities connected um, are seized. Now Civil asset forfeiture, this is where all this horrible, horrible abuse that I highlighted in the article comes about because this type of forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture, is it's seizure of personal property without conviction, without conviction. I mean, that should, in and of itself, fly in the face of anybody who has any sort of uh, idea of personal liberty and property rights, right? This is just uh, the government taking property from lawfully innocent people. They're not convicted of any crime. In fact, a lot aren't even charged. (laughs) Um, If you look at um, Missouri, uh, I I highlighted in the article, they coerced at least 39 motorists into signing over a total of like $2.3 million of their personal property. Most of it's cash. And where does it go? It goes right into the pockets of the same state, local, uh, and federal departments that are needing money. So these people are actually funding department budgets. <laughs> I mean, and you can look at the abuses of that. I mean, the Manhattan DA in New York, where I am, spent $250,000 Last was found to, I, again, was found to have spent $250,000 of forfeiture funds on luxury travel and dining. Uh, you know, people's life savings are being taken away because they're suspected of a crime, okay? Nine in 10 cases that are brought to court to challenge, uh, um, excuse me, nine in 10 cases of this are never, uh, never received justice because they can't even bring them to court to challenge because of the insurmountable costs on top of the personal property costs they've just incurred. And uh, last point, in the article, I highlighted Chicago, which is particularly bad, reasons C.J. Ceramilla wrote a fantastic um, article exposing this 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 type of property seizure, between 2012 and 2017, the, the Chicago Police Department seized over $150 million worth of personal property. If you look from 2005 to 2015, the number jumps to $319 million. And this is, you know, 6,000 vehicles, Xbox controllers, majority like $1,000 clumps of cash. And where does it primarily hurt Demographically and socioeconomically, poor neighborhoods, and minority neighborhoods. So, again, to a certain extent, uh, this is not only a rot on civil liberties, but uh, a rot on, on racial equality. Um, so, this is really just a horrible practice, flat out. Um, so, and that's sort of my quick synopsis. All
0: right, all right. And in my opinion, I think that more de- the deontological claim. Focus on who that is deontological, simply as it relates to ethics or rules, as it relates to like sort of established concrete principles in a very simple way. Principle and consequentialist, uh, uh you know, circumstance or effect. Principle effect. Principle effect. Sort of the dec- sort of dichotomy there. The the deontological claim that it's it is a, a violation of civil liberties is much more resounding to me because the rot on those things is quite literally a rot on the human condition. Liberty, in my in my estimation, is the vector for the human condition to flourish in the natural world. And so when you rot liberty, you rot life. When you rot life, we die. And uh, death is a natural part of life, but it's not when it's premature. <laughs> so, <laughs> <you> know, so <laughs> I mean, when it's premature, it's a kind of an aberration of the natural order and the natural laws, so to speak. Um, but I do think for messaging purposes, pushing Salaf's forfeiture as a race issue may have some merit. Although I do think that it ultimately takes away from the power that the more deontological approach would would have. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, I think it's, uh, this is just a pretty factual claim. It just, this, I mean, you hear this talk a lot, but this civil asset forfeiture disproportionately affects minority communities. I mean, that is uh, indisputable. What you want to do with that information, so do, do with what you will. But, uh, to bring that up, I think it's important to at least understand how this works and how really it places the broader conversation that we're having today about police reform, um, which, is, which right. is largely seen as a racial equality issue. Again, whether you see merit to that or not, um, this fact of the matter is motivating people to, to want to get rid of this practice, which um, is a good thing.
0: All right, Anthony. You are great, my friend. I hope I can have you thank back. Thank you again. for having me on again. Oh yeah, no, it you. is a pleasure. You are always fun <laughs> to talk to. You're always fun to talk to. Seriously, um, would Appreciate you like any last words before we go? Because I know you got to go. I got to go. So any last words for you? Uh, go? No, just
1: thanks. You know, thanks for keep doing what you do, and uh, I'll be looking forward to listening to your future interviews.
0: Thank you so much, and as always, guys, please stay offensive.